All right, well, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Revelation 6. If you don't have a Bible, it's okay. You can pull it up on your phone. Um, but I do encourage you to have, whether it's in print or electronic, something, uh, Revelation 6 in front of you. And if you are opening to your phone, we're in the English Standard Version of the Bible tonight. Um, so on the tables, we have some outlines for you to, uh, to pick up. It gives you uh, a picture of the structure of the book of Revelation. We did talk about the structure of the book of Revelation when we started it, but um, I wanted to remind us of it as we're going through because it's easy to kind of lose your way. And so this way you have something you can use as a roadmap and kind of pinpoint where we're at as we go. And I'll get to that piece of paper in a second. But when we were last together, we looked at Revelation 4 and 5. We saw how there was this angel who was searching for someone who could open the scroll that was in the right hand of God the Father. The scroll is written on in the front and the back, showing that it is exhaustive. And here's what you see at the beginning of Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals, meaning it's completely sealed. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. In the ancient world, if a scroll is sealed, the only one who has the authority uh, to open that scroll is the owner, right? The one who put the seal on it. They can authorize somebody else to open it, or they themselves can open it, but no one else. This scroll belongs to God the Father. Who is worthy to open it but him? That's really the question that the angel was asking. Who is worthy to open this scroll but the one that it belongs to? And then John, who's writing the book of Revelation, starts weeping loudly. He's weeping because there's no one to open it. Nobody's coming forward, and what's on that scroll is the message he's supposed to be getting to the seven churches of Asia Minor. How can he do what Jesus commissioned him to do if there's nobody worthy to open this thing? But of course, he's told to weep no more. And after he's told to weep no more, he looks, and this is what he sees. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So who is worthy to open the scroll? Jesus, the slain but standing lamb, right? Slain on the cross but standing resurrected. He's the only one who's worthy to take the scroll from the right hand of the Father and to open it. He's the only one worthy to reveal its contents. And so tonight, the lamb who is God in the flesh, he opens the scroll and we get to see what is written on the front and the back. We get to see what's inside, and spoiler alert up front, okay, it's, it's the history of the world in between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. That is what is written on the scroll, and as the seals of the scroll are broken, we learn what this world is going to be like until Jesus returns, the way things will be during the age of the church, and we learn what's going to happen when he does return. So... In terms of the piece of paper on your table, I want to say this is where we start to see the differences in schools of interpretation. I put my cards on the table week one with you, right? Um, I'm teaching not from a futurist perspective that most people are used to in a Southern Baptist setting, 
the futurist perspective would be what did you see in the left behind books or dispensational premillennialism. Okay, that's what you see in the left behind books. There are plenty of good and orthodox people in this church and outside of this church that believe that, and they are brothers and sisters in Christ. And I am uh, fully prepared to agree to disagree and not fight. All right. That being said, I can only be faithful to the text as I understand it. And so I am teaching not from that futurist perspective, but the idealist perspective. Meaning, as I read the book of Revelation, and as we read the book of Revelation, um, I don't understand it to be a sequential order of events. Instead, I see moving pictures in cycles or scenes or however you want to put it, okay? But these moving pictures that are telling us about the same events and the same message in different ways. And the message is, things are going to get really bad in the world. It's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse until Jesus returns. And as things get bad in the world, the church will suffer in the world as those who are persecuted, which we'll see tonight in this passage. But ultimately, when Jesus returns, there will be justice and things will be made right and his people are going to be rescued and he is going to win. All right, so let me say it a different way. The futurist left behind view, for the most part, sees the seven seals and the seven bowls and the seven trumpets as events that are going to happen at specific times in the future. The idealist view disagrees and says, no, the book of Revelation is a series of visions that show us in cycles how things are in the past, present, and future until Jesus comes back. I'll put it this way. I remember watching the Super Bowl in this room, and I'm a fan of the Washington Commanders, formerly known by a name that we no longer say, okay? So the Washington Commanders, that's my team, and so if you root for the Commanders, and the playoffs are going in, you do not root for the Eagles, okay? Sorry, Eagles fans, you do not root for the Giants, and for the love of all things holy and good, you do not root for the Dallas Cowboys, all right? So settle down, settle down. I love how I get up here, I'm like... I'm not a dispensationalist, and I don't agree with the left-behind view. You're like, that's fine. Go on, brother. And I'm like, don't root for the Dallas Cowboys. What's going on here? You know? <laughs> so, absolute outrage. But, so I'm watching that game that night. I remember, and I'm rooting for Thomas Brady and the New England Patriots against the New York Giants because I don't want Giants winning Super Bowls. I don't like that. So I'm watching it, and I remember Eli Manning dropping back and the Giants offensive line getting away with about nine holds in about nine seconds, and the referees didn't call it, all right, not bitter. And then Eli throws this ball up on a wing and a prayer as he's getting hit, and this guy, David Tyree, who has never done a meaningful thing in the rest of his professional football career, jumps up and somehow catches this ball with one hand against his helmet and keeps it there as he falls down being tackled. And on the replay, you're just watching and going, surely the ball touched the ground. And it didn't. That is one of the most famous catches in all of NFL history. And you know what? There is video of that catch from about 37 different angles out there that you can watch on YouTube, right? In fact, I haven't looked for it because why would I want to watch that as a Washington fan? But I bet if you like the Giants, you could find one video that has all 37 angles in that one video. And they just show them one after another. This is the book of Revelation. It's one set of events being explained from all these different angles. It's the Lord saying, look, see it from this angle. I'll explain it to you through the, through the seals. And then see it from this angle. I'm going to explain it to you from the bowls. And I'll explain it to you from the trumpets. And I'll explain it to you using the analogy of a millennium in Revelation 20. And so these cycles are showing us the same events just from different perspectives. 
So we've gone through cycle one in which Jesus is telling us what those churches in Asia Minor are like, but remember there's seven of them, so he's not just talking about the churches in Asia Minor, but, uh, Asia Minor, Asia Minor, but the complete church, right, throughout all of the age of the church, all the churches. He's saying this is what churches are going to be like. These are the problems they'll have and here's what they need to do. And then as we get into cycle two, we have seen the one seated on the throne who is the scroll in his right hand, and we have seen that Jesus is the only one worthy to open that scroll, and now in cycle two, we're going to find out um, more about the way things are going to be until Jesus returns. Sam Storms puts it like this, finally, let us remember that the trumpets, as also the seals and bowls, at least the first five of each and possibly the sixth, are not datable events, but describe the common places of history. These are not judgments or plagues reserved for the final few years of this age, but rather aspects of the world situation, which may be true at any time. So you, you won't hear me talk about a seven-year tribulation that the church doesn't experience that begins with the opening of the first seal. Instead, you'll hear me talk about tribulation that is upon the entire earth from the time of Jesus' ascension back into heaven and the time that he returns. The church is there, and the people who dwell on the earth who rebel against God are there, and in the end, one set of, of, of people is going to be rescued and is going to win with Jesus, and one set of people is going to be judged, and because they have rebelled against Christ they will be defeated along with Satan and anyone else who is helping him in his fight against God's kingdom. Okay, so I know that we're really heading in. When you get to chapter 6, things get real different. And so I just wanted to kind of remind you the perspective I'm teaching from. If we get done with Revelation and you go, brother, I just do not agree. Pastor, I don't agree. That's fine. But if we get through it and you go, I don't agree, but I understand. I understand the perspective you taught from. I get it then I feel like we're good. I feel like we've done a good job here in this study. All right? So, um, but as you come to it, uh, keep your heart open before the Lord and let his word speak. All right? So Revelation 6, starting in verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that the people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine, with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake 
The sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Before we jump right into the first seal being opened, let me say something about the seals. The first four seals are naturally grouped together because you've got these horsemen that are coming along with them. The fifth seal has a bit more to do with Christian martyrs dying for Christ in the age of the church. Then you get to the sixth seal. And with number six, the cosmos, the universe as we know it, starts to fall apart. And that means that God's wrath and God's judgment have arrived. The sixth seal represents the day of the Lord. It represents the conclusion of history as we know it. And then the seventh seal is not going to come until the beginning of chapter 8. We get this interlude in chapter 7. And at the beginning of chapter 8, we'll get the seventh seal, which just further explains final judgment. And you'll see as we go through the six seals that one begets another. One seal's open, and then the next seal makes sense. And the next seal makes sense. Uh, and so they build on each other. And I also wanted you to know that if you have been with us in our Luke study, so uh, on Sunday mornings when we went through Luke 21 and 22 and we got to his Olivet Discourse, uh, or you can read his Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, he's on the Mount of Olives, he's teaching his disciples, it is the week of his arrest and crucifixion and ultimately his resurrection, it's Holy Week. And as he teaches them, he is telling them about how things will be until he comes back. And we're going to see in the six seals tonight that the words of Christ in Luke and in Matthew are being fulfilled in how things play out with these seals. And so I'll point that out as we go. So with all that said, let's open some seals. John watches as Jesus opens the first, and he hears one of the four living creatures who were around the throne worshiping in chapters 4 and 5 say, Come. You think he's inviting John to come and see what's going on. He's actually calling for somebody else. And in verse 2, we find out who that somebody else is. It is a rider on a white horse. He's got a bow, he's got a crown that was given to him, and he comes out conquering and looking to conquer. Now, there are some who argue that, uh, and, and I'm talking about brilliant people who argue that this is Jesus. And you can see how they got there, right? Because you read Revelation 19, and you see Jesus returning on a white horse. You're like, all right, rider on a white horse there, that's Jesus. We've got a rider on a white, white horse over here in chapter 6. That's got to be Jesus as well. However, um, I don't think it's Jesus. I, I, I think that the more natural reading is that it is someone else. And I say that because the three riders who come after are not good guys, all right? It's three riders, like you don't want to wake up in the middle of the night with visions of any of those three horses, you know what I mean? They all are going to be representing bad things. So it makes sense that this first rider also would represent something that's not great, 
And we got to remember that in the book of Revelation, counterfeiting is a theme. You see Satan trying to counterfeit the work of Christ. So it makes sense then that if in Revelation 19 we do have Jesus on a white horse, that here we would have someone try to counterfeit that and act like they're as powerful as Jesus, but we see really they are not. I think this white horse doesn't represent Jesus, but represents conquest. Nations riding out against other nations to try to take them over. The horse is white because when Caesar would go and he would defeat a nation and he would come back and they would have a parade through the streets of Rome to celebrate the victory, his chariot was pulled by what? White horses. The rider has a bow, means that he's looking for a fight. And the white rider is wearing a crown that is given to him showing that the rider has been successful in some of his conquests. But that success doesn't belong to the rider inherently. He's only been granted that success by someone else. And so if this writer represents nations conquering other nations, we know who is granting the authority for one nation to conquer another, and that is God. We don't always understand why he allows certain nations to conquer other nations, right? But none of that's happening outside of the governing of God. Nobody in world history has led a victorious conquest outside of his governance. So this is seal number one. Nations are trying to conquer other nations, and this is the way it's going to be until Jesus comes back. During the age of the church, we're going to look around us and we're going to see the nations at war with one another, raging with one another. So what happens when nations go on conquering missions against other nations? Well, the second seal is broken. The second living creature says, come again. This time, the horse that comes out is bright red. And the rider on the horse, in verse 4, is permitted to take peace from the earth so that people would slay one another and is given a great sword. This horse, along with the next two, are much easier to interpret than the first uh, first horse. This is the horse of war, right? This is the horse of bloodshed. And you see how we get here, right? First seal opens, nations are trying to conquer other nations. Well, what happens when nations come against one another? People die. Right? Blood is, is spilt. And so the bright red horse is symbolic of the blood that's shed in war. The rider is permitted to take peace. Again, permitted by who? Permitted by God, the one who has all authority. Uh, permitted to take peace and is given a sword. So just like there's never been a conquest by a nation outside of God's governing, there has never been, nor will there ever be, a war that takes place outside of God's governing. And again, we don't understand why God permits certain wars and certain events to happen in the midst of wars. Our finite minds can't comprehend his massive plan and and why he operates in his wise righteousness the way that he chooses to operate. We leave that to him. We trust him with that. But just as there will always be nations looking to conquer other nations during the age of the church, we can look around and we're going to see that there's going to be bloodshed all around us during the age of the church. And Jesus told us this in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, verse 6. And you will hear wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So this is part of the reason I don't understand Revelation 6 to be a sequence of future events, but a symbolic explanation of how things are until the Lord returns, because that's how Jesus taught about it in Matthew 24, that wars will come and wars will go, but the end is not yet, and it lines right up with what we're seeing in Revelation 6. All right, conquest, war, what's the result of that? 
the third seal is opened by Jesus. And here we have the horse and the rider summoned, and this time it's a black horse. And the rider on the black horse doesn't have a great sword, doesn't have a bow, it's got a pair of scales, like the ones that would have been used in the marketplace to measure out food. And we're told by a voice in the midst of the creatures, the prices of food. For a denarius, you can get a quart of wheat. For a denarius, you can get three quarts of barley. Wheat and barley were the primary food sources in the ancient world. Like, if you were just a commoner, all right, um, if you lived in a family much like Jesus's, where your dad was a carpenter, you wouldn't have had a ton of money, for you to, like, have meat at the table would have been a rarity. That would have been a very special night, a very special occasion. For the most part, they were living off of barley and they were living off of wheat. The quantities described here, a quart of wheat and three quarts of barley, that's just enough to keep a family alive. That's just enough to make sure they don't die. And the denarius, that's the entire wages that somebody would make. Right, And so what we're being told here is it's going to take all of the wages that someone has to just be able to pay for food. People will spend their entire income just to keep basic necessities on the table. So you can see, seal number one, conquest. That begets seal number two, war, which begets seal number three, famine. Because we know that when there is war, food can get scarce. Economists are warning us right now that this Russian-Ukrainian war is going to cause natural gas, cotton, and wheat to skyrocket more than they have in 50 years. The cost of wheat is inflating because of a war that's happening on the other side of the world. And we're affected by that, right? Your nature zone is costing you more because of this war that's happening on the other side of the world. And this is what the Bible predicted would happen time and time again until Jesus comes back. There's going to be nations fighting each other. Blood will be shed. People are going to be hungry. By the way, if you see there, the oil and wine is not supposed to be touched. Um, you see that in verse 6, right at the end. Do not harm the oil and wine. Oil and wine are also commodities you wouldn't normally find just in like a carpenter's house, in a commoner's house. Oil and wine was extravagant. Oil and wine belonged to the rich. And so the implication is here is, is there's going to be wars and people are going to starve, but guess who will never starve? The people on top. And that's something my dad taught me from the time I was very little. He was like, son, no matter what happens, no matter what laws are passed, no matter what uh, economic regulations are put in place, the rich are going to find a way to stay rich, right? And we know that's true. People on top are going to scratch and claw to stay on top. All my dad was relaying to me is what the Bible has already told us. This is how things are going to be till Jesus comes back. Nations fighting, blood is shed, people are starving, But the rich, they'll still have their oil and wine. Jesus in Matthew 24, verse 7 said, And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Again, he's predicting all of this. Seal number four. The fourth horse and rider come out in verses um, 7 and 8 here. And this time the horse is pale and the rider has a name. So this is the easiest of all the horses to interpret because you have John literally saying, here's the name of the rider, right? And the rider's name is Death and Hades is following the rider. They're given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. 
There will be conquest. Conquest leads to bloodshed, which leads to famine, and famine leads to what? It leads to death. Hades is the realm of death. It follows close behind. Death and Hades are dancing partners. They tend to come together. And together, death and Hades are the enemies of human existence. Adam and Eve are garden they are told do not eat of this tree they could have any other tree in the garden god was incredibly generous to them don't eat of this one tree if you eat of this tree what's going to happen you will surely die sin ushers death into the world death is the enemy of the life that god gave them in the garden and so after the fall death becomes this looming threat that is always beckoning to take life from us and to return us right ashes to ashes dust to dust And not just us, but it threatens the lives of those we love. Like, I I would bet every person in this room has somebody tonight that they know and love who has cancer, and they're praying for them, and they love them, and and they hate that cancer, just as that person who has it hates it, and and everybody's praying together, right? Um, That's what we do, because we know death is the enemy, we hate the enemy, we pray against the enemy. Death and Hades are enemies that ultimately are going to be slain alongside Satan and all of his forces. By the end of the book of Revelation, death and Hades are going to be in the grave. Can't wait for it, right? But until Jesus comes back, death will continue to wreak havoc. You see the writer is given authority over a fourth of the earth. What that tells us is that though there is power in death, the power is limited. That God is still in full control. That death may be wreaking havoc in parts of the world, but it does not have the whole world. If you think this world is bad, and if you think the death you see in this world is bad, understand the only reason that it is not immeasurably worse is because of the mercy of our God who restrains it. So however bad you think it is, give God praise for the fact that he is mercifully restraining death and keeping it to a fourth of the earth. It's limited, but it's still devastating. Because until Jesus comes back, death will take life with the sword, right? That's war. Death will take life with famine, that's starvation. Death will take life with pestilence, that's disease, right? We just experienced COVID-19. Um, and, and, and death will take life with wild beasts of the earth, which if you're like, well, I, all the other ones I get, but wild beasts of the earth, we don't experience that so much. Wild beasts of the earth is just referring to nature. And so if you think about it, when people die, it tends to be because of war, starvation, disease, or just nature. And these sources of death are echoed by Ezekiel 14, 21. For thus says the Lord God, how much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence, to cut it off from man and beast. So that's the first four seals. That's the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? So just to summarize, the scroll that God holds contains the history of the world from the time of Jesus' ascension to Jesus' return. Only Jesus is worthy to open that scroll and unleash that history. The scroll is written on front and back and has seven seals to show we're getting a complete and full view of the life of Christ between his first coming and his second coming. And it would be completely sealed if he wasn't the one that could open it. But as the seals of the scroll are opened, we see what history looks like. Until Jesus comes back, nations will seek to conquer other nations, wars will be bloody, the wars will result in in starvation and famine, and the famine will result in death. And the death won't just come through famine, but also through the sword, through disease, and nature as well. So if that's what's going on in the world, okay, 
What's happening in the church? What's going on with the church? And that brings us to seal number five. The fifth seal is opened, and we know right away in verse 9 that it's different from the other seals because there's no living creature going, hey, come, right? Calling out some horseman. We don't get that. Instead, John looks under the altar in verse 9, and as the fifth seal is opened, he sees the souls of those who have been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. These are martyrs. These are people who have given their lives for the kingdom. These are people who have counted the cost and said, the gospel is worth everything and I will die for it. I will die for the lamb who died for me. We don't know why they're under the altar of heaven here, but it probably is a reference to uh, burnt offerings from the Old Testament. Sacrifices were made on the altar of the burnt offering twice a day to the Lord. And in the same way that those offerings were laid there, these people laid their lives down as a sacrifice for the kingdom of God. Their lives were a burnt offering. And so now they are under the altar. And in verse 10, we see that they're there crying out to God in prayer. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood and those, uh, on those who dwell on the earth? This is a cry for justice. Christians were slain for their faith in the first century. As, as Jesus is giving these visions to John and John is speaking to the churches, he's speaking to people who had friends who had died. In fact, one of those friends we saw in the letters to the seven churches is he's called out by name, right? Antipas. He got his head cut off, right? He, he was from Pergamum, got his head cut off. So uh, people were dying. There was all sorts of ridiculous stuff being said about them. We call, you know how we call one another brothers and sisters? And so because we call one another brothers and sisters, they were accused by the culture of being incestuous, which is ridiculous. Because they ate the flesh and, and, and blood of, of Christ in communion, and uh, they worshipped Jesus who came into earth as a baby, uh, people were running around saying, uh, these people are cannibals and they eat babies, right? That's the sort of stuff that was being said about them. And we also believe they had the entire fire of Rome uh, that took place in the first century blamed on them and that they were killed for that. And so they were suffering. In Acts 7 and 8, we meet Stephen, the first Christian martyr we know about. He dies at the hands of the Jewish authorities, including uh, a man named Saul who was there presiding over his death. And of course, Saul would be saved and he would become the Apostle Paul. Um, I talked about Pergamum, chapter 2, Jesus talking about Antipas getting his head cut off. And then in Revelation 20, uh, verse 4, we have more about the martyrs. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. Those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And Christians have been slain for the cause of Christ ever since. Whether it's Bartholomew, the apostle, being arrested and tortured and crucified like his savior in 70 AD, or it's William Tyndale being burned at the stake in Belgium and with his dying words saying, God opened the eyes of the king of England so that a translated English Bible would be allowed in his home country. He had given his life to that work and he was killed for that work. Or it's 40 Christians being killed in Nigeria as they worshiped on Pentecost just this year. Jesus said this is how it would be. 
He says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. The martyrdom we see in the opening of the fifth seal is just a confirmation that the words of Christ in the Olivet Discourse are true. The question is, what's Jesus going to do about it? Well, we can actually see a bit of what he's going to do in the way that he's addressed in this prayer. We get an idea of what Jesus is going to do about the fact that his children have been killed in the names that are given to him. He's called sovereign. That means he's in control. That means he is in a position where he can vindicate the name of his church, where he can act on their behalf. He's called holy. And if he's holy, that means no sin will go unpunished on his watch, and that certainly includes the sin of slaughtering his children. They call him true, which means he's committed to the truth. And he's committed to battle and defeat all liars and all falsehood. And that would include vindicating his own people and his own name by judging those who have warred against the church. But we still don't really get an answer in verse 10. They cry out with this loud voice. And there's two really important words in there. How long? Right? How long? It's reminiscent of David in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord? They're saying, how long until you avenge our names? How long until you avenge your church? How long until you avenge your own name? How long until the vindication? How long until the justice? And we don't really get an answer. The duration of time is not given. But he's sovereign and he's holy and he's true. He's got to do something, right? Well, look what you see in verse 11. You see a private vindication. Okay, It's not public yet, but in private. They're each given a white robe. Of course, the white robe is a symbol of righteousness in uh, the Scriptures. And a white robe in Revelation is something that is only worn by Christians. You you don't see non-Christians wearing white robes in the book of Revelation. So by him putting this robe on them, he's saying, you got a right standing with God, and you are my people. Don't worry. You're mine, and you're righteous. By my death, you are righteous. So it's a private vindication, right? But it's only private. For the public vindication of his name, they got to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. What's he saying? How do we know it's not time yet? Well, we know it's not time yet because the number of their fellow servants and their brothers is not yet complete. Everybody who's going to be saved isn't saved yet. This again lines up with what Jesus taught in Matthew 24. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The end has not yet come because there's still nations who haven't heard. There's still work to do. But when the last one who is going to believe, whose name is written in the book of life already, when they believe and they are justified and the number is complete, Jesus is going to come back. And when he comes back, it will not just be a private vindication of the martyrs, it's going to be a public vindication of the martyrs in the form of a global judgment, and the whole world will know then what we already know, that the church belongs to God. When he returns, and he is not judging his church, but he's rescuing his church, and his church, the 144,000, the people of God, stand with him as his militant people, then the whole world's going to know who belongs to Jesus and who does not. There won't be any question. They will be vindicated. Which brings us to the final seal. There's a seventh seal to come in chapter 8, okay? but the final seal for tonight is the sixth seal. 
And when the sixth seal is open, it represents the end. When Jesus opens the sixth seal in verse 12, when he opened the sixth seal, the opening of the sixth seal is in answer to the prayer of the martyrs under the altar. How long, O Lord? Okay? We don't get a duration of time, but he, he, he's showing the martyrs, here's what it's going to look like when I vindicate my name and the church's name. The martyrs cry out, Jesus responds, the seal is opened. We know John is seeing a vision of the end because of the language that is used. It's all apocalyptic in its nature. There's a great earthquake in verse 12. The sun is turning black like sackcloth in verse 12. The full moon is like blood in verse 12. you got the stars of the sky falling to the earth like a fig tree dropping its uh, winter fruit in the wind in verse 13. In verse 14, the sky vanishes and rolls up like a scroll. And then in verse 14, every mountain and island is upended and removed. It's all symbolic, apocalyptic language to let us know that as God is judging the earth in final judgment, the created order is falling apart. And you'll see it happening again when the seventh seal is opened in chapter 8, because in the breaking of that seal, um, that seal, I'll call it like a literary device to further explain final judgment to us. You see it happening before the seventh trumpet blows in Revelation 11, and you see it again when the seventh bowl is poured out in Revelation 16. It's final judgment, the day of the Lord. Jesus again warned us this is how things would be and this is how they would end in Matthew 24. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. I know we're over time, but I want to finish, and I think I can get out by 7.40, so let's ride, all right? So, this is how the day of the Lord was described in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, there was a double fulfillment happening in the prophecy. So on one hand, the prophecy is being fulfilled in the day of that prophet, right? So, for example, like, as Isaiah is talking about the day of the Lord, he's talking about the judgment that's going to come down on Babylon, as Ezekiel talks about the day of the Lord, he's talking about judgment that's going to come down on Egypt. But as that's explained, it's also looking forward to the future day of the Lord, the final day of the Lord, when Jesus returns and, um, and, and everything we're seeing here is unfolding, right? The world as we know it is ending and then the new earth is going to be created and, and then all of his people will dwell there under his reign forever. It's kind of the same way Jesus is talking in Matthew 24 and in the book of Luke in that Olivet Discourse. Because if you remember from when we studied it in Luke, he's, he's going back and forth, right? He's like, here's how things are going to be until I come back. Also, in 70 AD, Jerusalem's going to get leveled because they crucified the Savior. And then here's how things will be until I come back. And then also, just remember, in 70 AD, Jerusalem will get leveled because they crucified the Savior. And so that destruction of Jerusalem, if you'll remember, was like a preview of what's to come when he returns. In the same way, those Old Testament days of the Lord were a preview of what's going to happen when he comes back. But listen to how those prophets talked about the day of the Lord. Joel said, the sun would be turned to darkness and the moon would be turned to blood. Sound familiar? Isaiah said the sun will be dark in its rising and the moon will not give its light and that the stars would fall from heaven like the leaves of a fig tree. I mean, come on. You can't deny it, right? Ezekiel said the sun would be blotted out by a cloud and the moon would not give its light. And so as those 
Old Testament days of the Lord are described and they look forward to the ultimate day of the Lord, it is clear that here we're talking about the day of the Lord. We're talking about final judgment. The Lord is returning with the sixth seal. He's judging the earth. His church, including the martyrs, will be vindicated and the people who dwell in the earth who rebel against him will be judged and defeated and the cosmos will be melting down as a sign that the end is upon us. In verse 15, the vision continues, and John says he sees the kings of the earth and the great and the authoritative and the rich, as well as the slave and the free, the generals, they're all in the caves and the mountains. And you know why they're all in there? It's because everybody's going to be judged. You can't show up on the day of the Lord and say, excuse me, Lord, Lord, I I make $160,000 a year, top 1%. Can I avoid this? Can I get out of this? Lord, Lord, I'm not a Democrat. I mean, come on. You, you got you to let me in, all right? Look, look on the back of my Prius. You're going to see. No, no, no. The Prius might be the Democrat. All right. Look, look on the back of my Ford Ranger, all right? Look on the back of my Yukon. You're going to see my elephant there. You got to let me in. Your socioeconomic status isn't going to matter a lick on the day of the Lord and who you vote for and, and um, what football team you root for and the position you got at your job. None of that is ultimately going to save you. In the end, people aren't going to be divided up along the lines of economic status or what position they hold or whether or not they're slave or free. Judgment's going to fall down the lines of are you loyal to Jesus or are you not? Do you bow your knee to him or do you not? Do you obey him or do you oppose him? Do you trust him or do you rebel against him? It will have nothing to do with earthly position or power. And so those who have rebelled against them are hiding out in the caves, hoping to escape the wrath of God. But when it becomes clear they can't, they cry out to the rocks and the mountains to fall on them. By the way, that's just totally consistent with the way they've lived their lives. Romans 1 tells us, people trade in worship of the creator for the creation. So what happens here? Do they pray to God for mercy as he's judging? No, they just cry out to the creation they've worshipped. Can you help me? Can you fall on me? Not realizing the creation is at the will of the Creator. The martyrs cry out to Jesus for vindication. The enemies of Christ cry out to nature for protection in the end. Can the rocks and the mountains give me a merciful death? But crying out to the creation will do nothing. What they need is a mediator to atone for their sin, and they don't have it because they rejected him. And so in verse 17, the day of wrath has come, and we get this question Who can stand? And that question will get answered in chapter 7. When I was in college, I'm going to say this and then we'll close. As I was thinking about the application of chapter 6, not just understanding what's going to happen, but how does it apply to our lives tonight in the next three minutes, I'll get you here. When I was in college, what I was told is, hey man, you got an evangelized, tell people God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. As a believer who has been converted, I know God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life, but before I was a Christian, the things that happen in the Christian life, I would not have counted as being so wonderful. Because if you've read the Bible, you find out once you become a Christian, you're going to suffer. That, that if you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. You find out that there are thorns in the flesh you may get, and you might cry out to God three times for him to be taken away, and his answer is, no, I'm actually going to leave that there to show you that my grace is sufficient. Does that all sound wonderful to the ears of an unbeliever? Or as they experience those things, are they going to go, that's not the bill of goods I was sold. And the second they start to feel any level of suffering, any level of persecution, 
they turn and run from the church because they were told God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life and the suffering doesn't feel so wonderful, so they get and they're gone. I'm not so sure we should be starting our evangelism conversations that way because God's plan might not look so wonderful to the unbeliever. This passage in Revelation 6 removes any idea of an easy Christian life. Any idea of heaven on earth is just taken away from you. John's vision in these seals destroys it, right? Is the gospel going to keep going forward during the age of the church as there's conquest and war and famine and death? Absolutely. Jesus promised it would. The gates of hell will not prevail against the Lord's church. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. It's a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. This is what he's taught us. But as the gospel spreads and the kingdom grows, there's opposition for the church. There's war, there's strife, there's hunger, there's disease. Believers are being slain for their loyalty to Jesus. Life is not easy. The Christian life is characterized by these features. This is one of the reasons that the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, which teaches that there is um, no room in God's will for your sickness, that God doesn't want you to be poor, in fact, teaches that part of Jesus' death on the cross, which I think this is blasphemous as it gets, that part of him dying on the cross was so you could get that car and so you wouldn't have that sickness. It's ridiculous. They teach that, and, and I want to say to folks that are believing it and reading it, read the book. Just read the book. I mean, come on, like, war, strife, hunger, disease, opposition, martyrdom. It doesn't sound like health and wealth to me. So don't expect peace and justice now. We work for peace and justice. We're not defeatists. We do our work as the workmanship of Christ. But know that as you serve and as you suffer, your heart might cry out with the martyrs. How long? And we don't know. But we know that it won't last forever. He's going to come back. And swords will be beaten into plowshares. And strife will be replaced with peace. And hunger will disappear. And God's people will feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Disease will have no place in Jesus' heaven. There will only be health there. The martyrs will be vindicated. But folks, until then, we're going to keep seeing new waves of evil. And it's going to come in cycles again and again until he comes. And when he comes, it will stop. And so until then, we hold on to the sovereign Lord who is holy and true. We seek to be a part of those who can stand in chapter 7. Let's pray. Father, your word is so good. It's so rich. There's <laughs> so much there. Father, um, I just pray that uh, tonight you would help us to be realist. We see how the world is. We can't hide from it but to also not be defeatist. We are not a people who needs to leave here tonight being pessimistic about the future. We're a people who leaves here tonight being hopeful because we know that you're going to return. And we know that all things will be made right. And we know your church will be vindicated and your name will be vindicated. We know, Father, that those who do not worship the creation but worship the creator and are loyal to his son ultimately will be redeemed. And we hold on to this. And so tonight, if wars and rumors of wars and conquest and disease and famine and death are hunting down the people in this room and they're tired and they're weary, I pray that tonight we are encouraged to hold on, to rest a little longer, knowing that the end will come and that things will be made right. And that in the meantime, we would preach the gospel because we know that 
as, as souls are saved, which each, with each soul that repents and believes, we're moving one step closer to your son coming back. In Maranatha, we can't wait. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.